WOP in Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio, on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. I'm Diana Moxham. Today on Speaking of the Arts, we see the world through the photographic lens of two of Columbia's cadre of female photographers. Anastasia Pottinger will be dropping into the studio for the second half of the show to talk about her new book, 100, What Time Creates, which is a beautiful exploration of our skin as time's canvas with 64 photographs of 14 centenarians. But first, First, we explore nature's canvas as seen through the eyes of a recently retired environmental engineering consultant and keen observer of the natural world, Carrie Yonley. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Thank you, Diana. Glad so, to be here. How um, are you enjoying retirement? Oh, it's absolutely phenomenal. There's <laughs> nothing like having a more leisurely lifestyle and um, not having the pressure cooker part of life of the job, even though it was fascinating and I enjoyed it and being able to focus more on photography now. Are you, are, do you find that you're doing that or are you finding other things to fill your time or are you filling it with photography? Well, time is filled very easily. It's different <laughs> when you're retired and so I am doing probably a little more than I did before, but I always had photography going in background even when I was uh, busy in my career. So it's evolved uh, somewhat. And I have known you for many years because you used to, you've been a member of the Columbia Art League for a long time and we sold your greeting cards for the longest time and had your work on the wall. So you definitely were combining um, leisure and or your, your leisure pursuits and work very effectively for so many years. And you were selling cards all over the place. I mean, it wasn't just at the Columbia Art League. You always had a box of cards that you would bring in different seasons. We'd change them out every season. So you have a huge collection of work. Oh, yes. I've been doing it all my life. The greeting <laughs> cards have been absolutely fun for the last many years because you can do so many different ones but right. uh, yes I always combined it with engineering even though it made me crazy in background but at this point in life I'm so glad that I <laughs> sustained it all these years to have it here in retirement. So you have a new book out it's called Elements of Life Through the Lens of Carrie Yonley. Describe the book for everyone and tell us how it finally came about after all these years. Well it's a very long journey, as I've learned that books can be, and I've been working on it for well over 10 years, probably 13 to 15 years conceptually. And uh, of course, that's because I was also working and doing everything else in life. But uh, the book represents kind of a journey of my life in photography, and it really goes through all the different facets. There's so many ways that you can photograph and so many different subjects and so many different ways to look at the light. And so I remember even way back when talking to people and categorizing types of photos and subjects of photos. And so the book kind of captures that and walks through different elements of life, thus the title, um, and presents really the journey of my photographic life up uh, through many different aspects. Now, you got your first camera from your father when you were... Eight, seven, seven or eight. <laughs> right. Tell us about your dad and his photography lessons. Oh, my. Well, my dad was a very interesting person. He was a physics professor down at Rolla, a, a brilliant man, and he had both left and right brain. So as I look back at him, he, just an amazing person because he studied optics, which is why cameras and the technology surrounding them and teaching that to his daughters was very important. And we all 
grew up with cameras and knowing that that was an important part of life. But then I look at what he did. He retired. Um, he decided to retire early at 62, suddenly. And he became a writer, a poet. A, he used every part of his brain. He, him and my mom traveled to different parts of the United States and the country, learning different things, trying different things. He actually became a screenplay writer, won a contest at age 80. And at age 89, even as he was declining, he was a lead role in two different plays. That's so amazing. an amazing person. <laughs> what was his screenplay about? Um, actually, he wrote... It, it was called Necessary Lies, and it was an interesting twist. He, he always had very interesting ways of presenting things. But um, it was actually about somebody who hid a secret for 30 or 40 years in their life to everybody around them. And then over the course of the, the play, it came out what was going on. Oh. Has the play been performed in Columbia? It was performed down at the Lake of the Ozarks. That was the, the prize for winning the, the contest he was in. So in case we don't get to see it, what was the secret? <laughs> um, it was about something that happened when the guy was in World War II hmm. and that things that had happened that he kind of kept from his family and he kept from himself even, and then it evolved over time. So a little little bit of a dark side, but that didn't come out till the very end as kind of a shock. So. And this is a work of fiction, or do you think he had, do you think it was his secret? No, I think it was fiction with a twist of science and sci-fi, just the way his mind worked. <laughs> and did he have books of poets, poetry that came out too? He didn't, let's see, he published lots and showed his daughters and his friends, and um, as far as an actual book, no, but as far as lots of different works, yes, and I have them all ready to go through again in in my house now. And you have all of his photography digitized, I so do. you could put together. Maybe you could do a father and daughter book of both your photography and and, and your you know your writing and his writing. Oh, that's interesting because he yes he was much more of a, a writer. I was a technical writer, but he really perfected getting beyond technical writing and and writing very interesting and a man of just the right amount of words. It totally amazed me when I really dove in later. But that, yes, he digitized his entire life of photography, which we have almost every year of my parents' life even recorded, and I own that. So it's amazing. What a gift. So he, he really was a Renaissance man combining the arts and science, which is a very interesting area for me, I think, how science uh, affects art and influences art and how art influences science in return. I think that's a very fascinating junction. So I wish I could have had a conversation with him. Now, your, your mother had fled with her family from East Berlin, uh, either before or during the war. How had, uh, and you talk in your book a little bit about how she really taught you about sustainability and conservation and the environment. So how had her upbringing shaped her pursuance of conservation? You know, that's a really an interesting question because everything I could see, and she did not talk about her youth a lot, so everything I could see, I never really attached that. But from the moment she was on her own, it was everything. And I think part of it was, of course, growing up in the time frame they did. But don't waste anything. Buy only quality things and make sure that they last for the rest of your life. And maybe the European upbringing um, led to some of that. And, and, of course, like I said, the time period. But um, from day one, and we lived in Rala by the time I was six and yes you don't drive across Rolla the whole three miles unless you have multiple things that you're gonna do and you always save so it, it was just um, kind of how she came out of all of that but again she didn't talk about her youth a lot hmm. and now I wish I could ask a lot right. more questions yeah a good sense of German efficiency yes exactly <laughs> 
<laughs> so following in your father's footsteps, you got your degree in chemical engineering and then you went to work in the oil and gas industry, which really seems like the antithesis of conservation and nature photography. How did those years shape you as a photographer? Well, I, I, as I look back at college, I'm like, how did I get there? First of all, living in Rolla, I did not plan to be an engineer. It, it happened. And um, so I found myself uh, going to school in chemical engineering. I actually called my dad to say, guess what I'm doing now? And he, he was amazed. But um, really, when I went to work for the oil fields, I remember kind of thinking, what's up with those oil companies back in the 70s? Uh, something's wrong. And then I thought, well, how do I know? I haven't been inside of one, so I decided I wanted to work for them to actually learn what was going on and, and kind of field rectify it myself. And what did I learn? It's a lot of people like me doing the best they can in their job every day, and that's what I've continued to learn whatever I've done. And um, so it, it at the mystification of it, and I think that translated also into the environmental world, I really liked seeing for myself and, and seeing what people are doing, and that kind of drove me in that. But I also realized, as I look back, that I could afford a camera and started to be able to afford a little bit of film when I got out of college. So being in the oil fields, I actually traveled a lot, and I'd, I'd traveled all my life with my parents, but I started traveling and just observing things, like 6.30 in the morning out in the middle of eastern Montana watching the antelope run as I rushed to an oil rig. Um, those kind of things just amazed me. And I always looked for the beauty. And people would say, oh, eastern Montana and western North Dakota, what's pretty there? But I just always found the beauty in the different times of the day and the way the light slept, swept across things. And so anyway, that was kind of my, I, I think, a really launching period for me is when I was in the in that field of my photography. Now, back in those days, of course, it was way before digital photography. So you were taking film photography, carrying rolls of film around with you for weeks at a time until you... Did you have your own darkroom? Were you doing your own... Development. I actually did get a darkroom in those years, but I, I'm the type of person had little time, so I bought a darkroom from somebody. A person showed me for about an hour how to use it in their home, and then everything else was experiment. So I can't say I spent a tremendous amount of time in the darkroom, but I have had that experience. I recently donated it to Battle High School, so maybe I'll go over there and work with work with the kids as they learn. But uh, no, it was before digital, and my I, I think I held on to my college economics for a very very long time because my my philosophy was I'll take one shot if it's meant to be it's meant to be and that's how I shot so even in times when I shot a lot it was about a roll of film a week which was 36 exposures which <laughs> floors me today with digital that I could do that I almost wish I'd get back to that because um, it was definitely a, a different time many of the skills are the same but tremendous difference in how you use the film versus digital. Talk about your early cameras. What was the camera your dad gave you? I had a Canon VT, which was a, um, it was through the lens. Well, actually, no, my first one was a rangefinder, And you had to do all the settings. And I don't know, it, I remember the Kodak film boxes back then had little drawings that showed you how to interpret the light versus how you set your settings with f-stop and the speed. And I remember dad going over that with me and making sure I understood how the camera was working. And again, he so enjoyed the optics part. We had to know about the the elements, which I think is funny. That's how the title, after I realized right. it was Elements of Life, I thought of elements of a camera and elements of chemistry and all those things. So you were really versed in the technical side of photography before you were versed in kind of the artistic composition side. 
I'd say that's true. And then Dad challenged me on the artistic competition, or the, the composition side, too. I remember taking a picture of lots of trees. And he said, what is that? And I said, it's layers of trees. And he'd smug his face and say, <laughs> I, I'm not sure about that one. So we kind of our back and forth was challenging each other to why we'd taken a picture, him more so of me. But I learned a lot from that. And was he a nature photographer, too? Was that his passion? He photographed everything, quite honestly. My parents were very much into the natural world. We camped from the time we were young. We actually even traveled in a van before that was popular, and just because it was an efficient way of, of spending a lot of time traveling the country. So, um, But I do find he, he pretty much traveled the world and, and was fascinated with people, with buildings, with everything that's out there. And again, it's the way the light moves and how it presents itself, and that's how I feel today. And that certainly comes true in your book. You have, um, I forget what the chapter titles are, but you you go through different lights and, and details. I think my favorite chapter in the book is the one where you talk about um, um, all the, the details, all the patterns of nature, the geometry of nature. And again, you know, I can, I can see you as a scientist coming through in lots of the chapters, which is you know, really lovely to see. <laughs> well, thanks. And I, I call those my texture shots, too, because mm-hmm. it's just, you know, the texture of things, the light, the color. There's so many things that move me. And again, today, I I, I say I'm addicted to the shoot with digital photography because every time I see it, nature smiles at me. I smile back and my camera does too. Now, you you started off by, you say, just taking one shot. And if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. Have you had to kind of fight that with digital? Is your instinct still to take one shot or have you embraced the digital age and you take 50? Oh, I take way too many. No, (laughs) I, I, I continue to challenge myself to try and get back to my origins. But with digital it just I find myself just shooting and and so I do practice sometimes I put myself on shooting diets to try and get back to what I know but uh, I'll continue to work on that the rest of my life I'm sure shooting diets that's great um, you have several lovely quotes in your book including one from a chief Seattle uh, and uh, it says humankind has not woven the web of life we are but one thread within it whatever we do to the web we do to ourselves all things are bound together all things connect and having worked at the highly impactful and slightly dirty end of the industrial world do you worry that the bad guys outnumber the good ones you've kind of been in the heart of it and I know everyone's just doing their best every day but when you look at industry and you look at nature and you think about Chief Seattle's comments are there enough good guys out there? I absolutely believe yes and again everything I've seen in my career is you know are there People out there trying to do something harmful, possibly. Have I run into it? No. I ran into people trying to do the best they can every day, learning, growing technology. I'm proud to have been part of what what I did throughout my entire time with industry. I'm glad I jumped into it to see it for myself. Uh, But life is a balance. And so I look at just our lifestyles overall, and that's what I came to. And I was on the front line a lot with projects and angry public and having to try to work with people to help them understand why our lifestyles the, the way we are, we have a whole infrastructure and things that have to be made. So it's really fascinating to look back and see, wait a minute, it's all us. It's, you know, I'm part of this. We're all connected. It's the balance of, of life that helps us, has helped us, and will propel us forward. And so I think each of our responsibilities is to learn and grow. And that's an, an education program I've been involved with teaching kids is as long as we're willing to be aware and learn and grow and, and find the things that make sense for us. Not everything makes 
makes sense for each person, but we can continue to work on that. You you mentioned something about how you created a science-based educational approach to introduce the balance of man and nature to others. Tell us about that. Um, back about 2009, I, I, I'm the kind of person, actually, that just walks around with ideas in my head, wakes up in the middle of the night, and after, again, being on the front line a lot with people really upset with industry and me trying to explain why this is something that's actually a good project, um, you know, really, I go through and and think about those things, and then the what happened is I was talking to a friend of mine also in the industry and I said here's what I think about all the time and his eyes started spinning and lighting up and saying we can do this you're so right and so the program I started um, with the help of some others was learning institute focused on the environment which is the life program something about that word life jumps into my (laughs) life a lot and uh, the program really when we got out there we started teaching and just talking about how we're all part of the world around us and how the lifestyles and everything we have there's so much happening out there to make that happen the simplest example and i told this to an engineering friend of mine is you buy an apple you eat half of it you throw the other half away think about all the things it took for that apple to come to you for you to throw half of it away so that's the the, the simplest concept but we got out and taught different ages and it always impacted people and it always made sense so i really think that the way we taught was really good and even when we got out in industry and to other scientists and talked about they said Oh, that makes so much sense. So again, the quest to how do you talk about things like that and how do you bring it to people and, and bring awareness, I think, is what what mostly was behind that. We we always want to, uh, uh, as a society, as, as a global society, we want to consume more and, you know, put more concrete down and, and pave over more fields and everything has to be sized up. We're always going for these kind of industrial scales rather than bringing it down to the human scale. So, I mean... Uh, is there looking back on your career and and what you've seen in nature is there anything that you wish you could have done differently or an uh, somebody that you could have influenced that was just too far on the other side I'd, I'd say it was more the early lessons from mom that I realized were really good and that, you know, for my for my life and my learning that I, I'm so impressed that she got it so much earlier. And so then being able to share that and then live my own life like that. And, and you know, I thought about myself and I thought, how can I teach environmental education? I'm not perfect. But I finally realized I'm willing to learn and grow and, and be aware. And I do my best and find the things that I can work on and continue to do that and will throughout my life. But yes, looking at our lifestyles, it's tough because life will evolve. It is, you know, it's where we're at. So I figure as long as we teach and communicate and each think about our responsibilities in the midst of all of our decisions, that will all contribute to continue to sustain us forward. Let's hope so. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm that, I'm that optimistic. Um, another quote in your book is from Theodore Roosevelt. He said, here is your country cherish these natural wonders cherish the natural resources cherish the history and romance as a sacred heritage for your children and your children's children and you clearly hold the landscape sacred and you have traveled far and wide is there anywhere in the united states that's on your bucket list still that you haven't been to because you seem to have been from coast to coast and everywhere in between is there anywhere still you want to photograph 
There are some places I haven't been, although I've been to all 50 states as I look back and have traveled extensively. And I think about it, I traveled all my life, both for fun, and I traveled extensively in my career the entire time. So right now, my focus is the one thing I haven't done is stayed home and enjoyed my surroundings in Southern Boone County. I do live in a gorgeous place out near town, but also on Cedar Creek. And so right now, it's all about staying home, watching every day of the season change, Thing I've never gotten to do, which my husband reminds me. And um, I would imagine after, again, I've only been retired six months, but maybe <laughs> after another year or two, I'll find places that I want to launch again. But right now, the stability of being home and getting to photograph every moment, like three weeks ago when the colors popped and then it snowed, I got to go outside instead of going to work that day. <laughs> and it was phenomenal. <laughs> now, your book, Elements of Life, is all American photography. It's all based in the United States. Is that correct? It is. 95% United okay. States. There are a few of the Canadian Rockies, okay. just North, North America. America. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't help but include those because it was part of our journey around the U.S. and into the, throughout the Rockies. So I guess I guess similar question. Is there any other country on your bucket list that you'd like to photograph? <sighs> Again, I have to decide how much I want to travel versus right. enjoying what we have. Yeah. Everywhere is gorgeous to me. I can walk right out the door and find beauty or I can travel extensively. Now, I did live in Europe. Um, I went to eighth grade in France. And so I did get to travel quite a bit there with my parents. And I would like to go back and see where we lived and visit the schools and photograph that again. But uh, I haven't made that decision yet. So we'll see. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for that book. So of, of all the thousands, gosh, tens, hundreds of thousands of photographs you have taken over the last 30 plus years. How did you decide which ones would make the cut for the book? That's a great question. I had a lot of help. And I worked with Christy Lee, who's a phenomenal graphic artist, book designer here locally. We became friends through another book submission that I'd done. And Christy finally had to take it out of my hands and get that started because that was an overwhelming process for me. So I got to uh, give feedback and contribute some more. And <laughs> But uh, Christy did a phenomenal amount of work with me help me choose those which that's another one of my goals in life is to be better at choosing it's hard it is hard and and then to see how christy laid them out i just love watching the process and how the pictures complement each other from the left page to the right page and then working with jan weiss fails and was my final writer to help pull the text together because i am a technical writer and so for it to be more poetic and more carry the book i i also got help there and i'm very thankful for for the people who helped me with it is very poetic. And I was thinking when I looked through the book, one of my comments was, I wish there was more writing I, because it felt like it was you talking. And uh, you were talking about the mysticism of fog and and some of the little captions you had. And I thought, gosh, I wish there was more of your voice as well as your, I mean, you have your voice in there, your photography, but I wanted kind of more details in the captions. You know, I thought uh, you, it sounded like you had that skill. Well, Jan interviewed me on every photo in the book. We already had captions, but then she interviewed me and wrote additional quotes of how I portrayed it, but not on all the photos. You're right. We leave some to the imagination <laughs> of the, the viewer. <laughs> Talk a little bit about photographing fog, because you have a, a couple of really beautiful photographs, and there's one at the back where you talk about the fog bow over a farm, and you kind of have blue sky at the top and this misty haze and the fog, uh, they, sorry, the farm arising out of the fog um, at the bottom, and you call it a fog bow. Is that your word, or is that a... <laughs> 
that's my it's word. Okay. <laughs> I don't even know if it's real, but it was. It looked just like a fog bow, a white <laughs> rainbow. But uh, fog is one of those things that I say I will always be practicing. Fogs, flying birds, those types of things. And that's what I love about photography. I will never be bored. I will always be practicing. I'll always have challenges. And that day in the fog, I was actually, I dropped my daughter at school. She was young enough that she wasn't driving yet. And I was driving home to go back to work. And um, I, I watched, it was completely fogged in. And I watched the fog lift as I passed that farm to create the fog bow. And I was just amazed. And yes, that's my word. <laughs> But uh, so described what I saw that day. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful shot. It's one of my favorites in the book. Thank the you. Another of my favorite shots, and it's something that I am still waiting to see, but you've seen the Northern Lights and photographed the Northern Lights. Um, how was that? How, was that difficult to photograph? Because they're moving. How do you <laughs> how do you capture them? It, it's kind of like capturing fireworks at night. It's as they're moving, you have to decide what part of the motion you want in there. And of course, that's crossed with having enough light sh- onto the film, which it was at that time, to capture them. So we were camping in Alaska, and it was about midnight, and I happened to look up, and there they were. And and Northern Lights, every time I've seen them, you're kind of rubbing your eyes and saying, am I seeing that? Wow. So um, just having the experience with night photography and small amounts of light like that, and then trying to capture and do a few different ones to see kind of how they moved and how that recorded on film. And again, very similar to firework photos, where you have to decide what you know period of time versus where the light is. So that's something I've spent a lot of time on in my photography career photographing fireworks fireworks and (laughs) and things like northern lights where there's you know a different skill to it that's really fun to combine the different technical challenges and tomorrow morning you're going to be at the boone history and culture center to give a talk about your book um we've only had time today to cover a little bit of your background and the book and you will be there for 45 minutes tomorrow when you have a powerpoint presentation so you can see the images from your book and also you'll be there to people can buy the book at the event right and you can sign the book yes. so and that's tomorrow morning at 10 30 it's yes the talk starts at 10 30 the doors are open there at 9 30 and the historical society is carrying my books in their store and then of course i've got them um, it can be reached through my website but tomorrow morning will be exciting please come and share that time with me as i uh, it'll it'll be very different than the environmental engineering talks that i gave <laughs> all these years so i'm really looking forward to it fantastic um thank you so much carry on you can hear Carrie talk about her book, uh, about her work and her new book, Elements of Life, through the lens of Carrie Yonley, tomorrow morning at 10.30 at the Boone History and Culture Centre. What is your email address as well? Uh, your, sorry, your website, I mean. It's carryonleyimages.com. carryonleyimages.com. So Correct. if you want to, if you can't make the talk tomorrow and you want to see some of Carrie's images and order the book, you can go to carryonleyimages.com. Tomorrow morning's event is free. And like I said, you'll be able to buy an autographed copy of Carrie's book. Carrie, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Diana. Very nice to be here today. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after the break, I'll be back with the irrepressible Anastasia Pottinger and a tour of her new photographic book, 100 What Time Creates. Do not wander away. 
Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOP in Columbia. And to my next guest, photographer to the people, Anastasia Pottinger, more frequently known as Stacy of Rogue Studios, whose new book, 100, What Time Creates, has just hit international bookshelves, including those of Skylock Bookshop on 9th Street. Welcome, Anastasia, to the show. Hello, hello. Nice to be here. I'm excited to get you all to myself. Well, oh, my goodness. For 25 minutes. <laughs> okay. Um, it's very exciting as you are a very busy, busy photographer, businesswoman, studio owner, artist, board member, mother, and oh now God. author. Is there anything now. you'd like to add to that list? Have I omitted anything? Um, organizer of drag queen events? Organizer of private <laughs> drag queen events? Yes, exactly. I don't think so. I, I, I th- a coffee drinker. Um, uh, oh, I'm a nanny one day a week. A nanny. <laughs> yes. And you are also, as well being a mother to two boys, you are a mother to a gerbil. A, oh, no, a not a gerbil. It's no a gerbil. guinea pig. Part-time. Guinea pig. Sorry, part-time guinea pig. A, a, a python. A ball python, yes. Two dogs? Two dogs. We're a two-dog house. <laughs> Cats. Two cats. You have a big family to look after. We do, we do. It's true. So you are one of the queens of portraits. Oh my gosh. Here in town. Irrepressible, I hear. <laughs> and a lot of families know you for your work photographing newborn babies, all chubby and silky skinned. Mm. But then a few years ago, an opportunity arose and you swapped that powder soft canvas for one that was etched with history, like going from Teletubbies to Tolstoy. Oh my gosh. So tell us the tale. You've done your homework. <laughs> of course. Tell us the tale of how you started photographing centenarians. Well, it's... Uh, <laughs> we should not do this together. This might have been a bad idea. But I started off... Um, it was not. It was purely by accident. My mom was working with a woman, Lucy Hall, who was my very first model, and she was 101. And my mom uh, was getting her ready for a massage and said, "You know, your skin is just so beautiful and interesting, and um, the folds of your skin and the wrinkles and everything—it's just beautiful." Have you ever thought of modeling nude? And um, she had just heard me speak about my career at Or Street Studios. Uh, hearing voices seeing vision series and so miss lucy said well no i've never thought of that but sure why not and so my mom called me and said would you like to photograph a 101 year old person nude and i said well um sure (laughs) don't get in any trouble mom (laughs) i didn't want her family lucy's family to get upset with her or anything and in the beginning so it was just an exercise in light and and texture and just playing around in the studio with Lucy and you know I didn't have any ideas of making it into a giant you know project that spanned you know eight or nine years I just was messing around with Lucy and she just told me stories and I was really nervous and she was nervous and you know we started with a robe I said bring your robe she had this really nice black fur robe and I said bring your robe and we'll start there and I I had you know empty coffee mugs for her to hold and just stuff because I was like I don't know what I'm doing we're just playing around and then you know she's the one who said well I guess you want to see my boobs (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so what's left of them? I don't have them anymore since they made me lose weight. And so I said, uh, yeah, sure, yeah. And <laughs> so, um, yeah, and then in looking at the images, I, I, 
I mean, I, I say this, and it's really true. I've said this many times, but I really did start to cry because I just thought, oh my gosh, this is really beautiful, and I've, I've not seen anything like it, and it really touched me. And then I quickly ran around Orr Street Studios, where my studio is, and showed everybody, and they were, oh my goodness, this is really beautiful. And so that's where it started. And I think that first shot that you had in the Art League mm-hmm. was a semi-boob shot, kind of a bit of tummy yeah, it was kind a t- of a cleavage. It was it was from the side, sort of from the like a three quarter side shot, and it was yeah her her breast on her tummy, which people thought uh, when you looked at it, you weren't quite sure what you were looking at. Right. Um, it's funny because it's been in the Tribune like two or three times, and I always thought you guys know there there's nipples in this picture, right? So, but they they printed it several times. Um, <laughs> and all the shots are in black and white. So it, they're it all is, black and white. When you yeah. look at it, it it was it was you didn't know what you were looking at. There was te- so much texture and shape, and it took a little while for it you to like realize. It looked like tree trunks. That one, yes, and I've seen trunks. a photo of these like swampland big trees in this swamp um, that my mother-in-law actually had like on a on a daily meditation book or something. And she said, "See, this is what I thought it was." And I said, "Oh my gosh, it does really look mm-hmm. like that." So I was thinking also sand dunes or just kind of what I you know, which is where I came up with the name. That's the first one that I named and I named it what time creates now the rest of them are not named anything interesting like that but you know they're like foot <laughs> right armpit you know stuff like that I like that I came up with one named. great name and then the rest are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's I think that's perfect and that is the, you know, the title shot for the book so in the book uh, uh, you have 64 images I believe of 14 centenarians um, people who I would imagine are relatively hard to find how did you find the other 13 after Lucy <laughs> well I have uh, a lot of my friends uh, recommended their grandparents. So several of them were grandparents of friends from high school. Um, and then I I cold called one guy from who lived in the same facility as Lucy and just called him up and he said, okay. He had heard about it. I guess I didn't cold call him. Um, and then uh, the... The last batch of them that I had to get really quickly before I finished the book, I put out an ad on Facebook to every market that I could um, fly to directly from Columbia. And then I ended up polling that pretty quickly because I had so many people locally that I just put it out on Facebook, on my Centenarian Facebook page and my own personal page and my Rogue Studios page. And... I know a few people who work in the aging industry and they put me in touch with some other people. And so that was it. And And then I just drove around to different facilities or different homes and met with people. And there you have it. Flew out to I flew out to San Diego and got a batch of people from out there, too. And people are perfectly happy and willing to strip off for you. So here's the thing. (laughs) After... (laughs) Lucy's really the only one that I went in saying, let's get naked together. (laughs) I mean, I kept my clothes on. The rest of them... Thanks for clarifying. Yes. Well, I mean, I don't mind. But yeah, somebody has to remain professional. Um, The others... It was funny. The second person I photographed um, was a friend of mine's grandfather. And she said, now he's a devout Methodist. And he doesn't 
he's not going to take his shirt off. He's definitely not going to take his pants off. Just don't even ask. And I said, okay, no problem. It's not a big deal. So he was wearing uh, this t-shirt or tank top and I was taking his picture and we were talking and had been shooting for, you know, 20 or 30 minutes. And he said, well, I guess you want me to take my shirt off now. And I was like, okay. Okay, I'm making a stunned face for those of you on the radio. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I got some of the best images of him. It was fantastic. Um, and his granddaughter just thought, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe Grandpa said he would take his shirt off." So did you did you choose like which parts of him to photograph, or was he saying, "Here, here, get my uh, get oh no"? My, he just saw. I just get my underarm here. No, no, no check out my elbow. No, <laughs> no, he just talked. And I what I do is ask them to tell me stories, and while we're talk, they're talking and I'm talking and asking questions then I just sort of start taking pictures and you know the probably the most uncomfortable part is I get in pretty close because I want them to be abstract images there's a a couple favorites from that session one is um, when he's he was just stroking his um, his arm skin and it was so loose like his arm he as he was stroking it the um, skin was just going up and down and up and down and and um so there's a, a great picture of that with his chipped fingernail that you'll find in the book is it called chipped fingernail you know, it, it should it's be called, called <laughs> chipped fingernail i don't i don't recall what it was called you know my publisher made me come up with some names that were a little more interesting um she went through and named them because i said i don't want to name them Blech, i hate naming work and she, she went through and they all sounded like uh um, nail polish names and I said no 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 that would be a great job to have naming lipstick colors I, and yeah you might paint. like that job I, I, uh, I'm always f- I, I really could. want to talk to somebody who does that job that would well, be an, find amazing I'll, I'll find them I'll, okay find them so so you had shown and sold your work in shows around Columbia of this centenarian series and then it kind of lay dormant for about three years and suddenly went Viral. What was it like to watch Lucy become an internet sensation? <laughs> well, I had showed it actually internationally. Let me just let me just say I had entered entered the first set of images into lots of competitions, and I was really into entering competitions at the time at, for validation of myself, and um, and that's all very exciting. And then uh, I had asked my mentors, uh, somebody that she knows writes a blog called Lens Scratch, and I. Said I think you know I have a great body of work. Would you mind putting it on your on your blog? And she did. And so then yeah, it sat for three years. I received uh, at the time it was really okay. Wait, do you want to hear this whole story? Of do you just want me to tell you how it felt going viral? Do you want me to just answer tell, your question tell or tell you the story? And okay, then tell us how it felt. Okay, so. Um, my email from my website at the time was going directly to my junk mail. Um, that was the problem. (laughs) So I didn't get the email from the person who wanted to run it on feature shoot. Uh, and finally she called and I, I answered, which was odd. And And um, hang on, feature shoot is what? Oh, sorry. Feature shoot is the, is the, uh, a website, um, that talks about photography and has how to not a how to, it does, it, um, does stories about photographers and, and their, work bodies of work shows different you know images and what people are working on things like that okay so um it's what started the viral sensation Uh so um this woman contacted me and said hey can i you know write this story about your work and i said oh yeah but where'd you hear about it and she said i was culling through the archives of lens scratch and i found it and i was just really impressed and i said oh you were really digging deep weren't you (laughs) 
<laughs> and because uh, it had been three years since it was on Lynn Scratch. And uh, she laughed and said, yeah. I said, well, do you need to interview me? Oh, no, it's already written. <laughs> That's how the Internet works, folks. <laughs> you don't have to talk to anybody. You can just rewrite something from their artist statement and make it sound like you wrote it and interviewed them. So I said, okay, yeah, that's fine. Tell me when it's going to run. So then I went through my trash mail and found, oh, God, I've missed, you know, this email. Um, And then uh, it ran on feature shoot. I didn't think anything of it, but by the next, I think it was the next day that I received, I think I got a phone call from CNN Photo Blog, somebody on on there that wanted to, you know, interview me or run a story. And I said, oh, my gosh, wow, okay, sure. CNN photo blog that's huge yes i was very excited (laughs) then then i think you know we went out to dinner and i i I don't know i went home i took a nap i don't know i don't remember exactly what happened but all i know is then i received a phone call from uh some um spinner of things (laughs) from london who left a message and i listened three different times and he said what he said was something I saw your work on board Panda and uh, I want to represent you da, 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 la, la, la. and I I listened to it three times to hear what he said in that to hear board Panda and I said oh my god did he just say my work was on board Panda and I the board, only reason I knew about board Panda is because I had a kid in m- middle school at the time or high school I'm not sure and board Panda was. is another website it's like a it's a oh man what's that word where they uh, take a bunch of things and conglomerate oh. no. aggregate aggregate yeah it's an it's thank a, you Sarah Catlin thank you site. it's an aggregate site where they just take stuff from the web and put it all together and people will see what's popular out there and so oh my gosh it's on board Panda so we went out to dinner and Joe Joseph just kept recycling the web, refreshing the website, and I think it got up to two hundred and fifty thousand hits or something. And that's when I said I gotta go to bed. It was just over. So I'm little, too famous to be awake any longer. I well, it was just overwhelming because. So the thing about it is, I didn't do anything. I mean, I did the work and put it out there, and then it just took off on its own. And from Board Panda, I mean, it was just you know, I don't know. I mean, I couldn't keep up with it. It it was. A bunch of emails that were in my junk mail. BBC, ABC, the Queen of England. The Queen of England. Everybody. There was lots of people contacting me, and I didn't know it. They're all in the junk mail. My brother quickly fixed that because he was my web guy. And he was really great because I don't understand how the internet works like this. He was talking to the uh, whoever our host of the website was at that time and making sure the website didn't crash, which I don't. I didn't know these things. I don't know. There's only, I guess, a limited amount of bandwidth or whatever. At some point, also in that process of going viral, maybe I forgot to renew my website or something. At some point, <laughs> it went down because I forgot to pay the domain registration. I don't know. You were busy being famous. It's understandable. Just very. It was so. It was crazy. It was weird. And you know, I tried to capital. Like, how can we monetize this? How can you? Ca- and the way it works is just people just grab it and run it, run the story, and give you credit or a link back to feature shoot or a link back to my website. Only like a handful of people actually interviewed me, um, and only you know smaller than a handful you know actually paid me for it. So. Um, to your famous but poor. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't have even <laughs> paid if I hadn't said, listen, I, I know that you, Huffington Post, pays people, so you're going to have to pay me. And um, But yeah, it was great. It was on Fast Company. It was on Lost in A Minor. I mean, I just, I don't even know. I, you could Google my name, and it would just list a, I don't even know, a ton of websites. It's this, crazy. It's so weird. Through this whole viral incident you found a publisher or she contacted you yeah so she contacted me uh i also um 
she contacted me and said, hey, we're this really small um, independent publisher. We'd love to publish your book. And I said, oh, wow, that's really exciting. And then at the same time, I was meeting with my good friend, Laura McHugh, and she hooked me up with her agent. And so her agent uh, then was really excited to take me on. And we worked on it. She said, well, let's let's go for some bigger people than this little tiny publisher. We can do we can do so much more. Uh, but then we didn't. I mean, it just people turned it down. It wasn't, you know. There were other humans of New York was really big. <laughs> the, we d- it was too accessible online. Um, those were some of the things that okay. we that we heard. It was too easy to get online. Nobody wants to nobody wants to have this book, and so I just let it go. And every year, you know, people would say, "Hey, where are you going with this book? You know, are you going to do this book?" Friends of mine would ask, well, "Aren't you going to? Yeah, you got to work on this book. You got to publish this book." Okay, yeah, this is the year I'll do it. I'll promise I'll do it this year. Um, and then it was just last year, maybe about this time, that um, the little publisher that could <laughs> emailed me again and said hey we're still interested if you haven't published that book we'd like to talk and I got really very excited at this point and said yeah yeah let's do it and so it's just come out this, it's this just month. come out yeah yeah and next Wednesday you're going to be at Skylark Bookshop talking about your book and that's at 7pm yes right? yes did Lucy live to know about her fame is yes. she still alive she is not still alive but she ate it up she loved it you know in the very beginning she said all she wanted my only instructions were to make sure she wasn't recognizable. Well, that lasted until everybody loved the images. And then she would come to events. I had a a, re, a reception at Orr Street to try and raise some money because I was going to um, be in a, in a show in uh, Argentina and I wanted to go. And uh, she just held court and answered questions. And, you know, lo- she loved every minute of it. But she passed away about two years, I think, after the project started. Oh, any and many of the other thirteen centenarians still yes. alive? The people that I just photographed this spring, um I heard of one passing away last week. Um and I'm not sure about the the others that I recently photographed. I'm in I'm in contact with a few people, so I know that they're still alive. Um but I'm not sure about all of them. So how, I think most of the ones that I just photographed are still alive. The all the ones from the first batch, they have all passed away. Okay. One of them just recent, like I think a year ago, and she was 107 at the time. Gosh, yeah. Um, how did photographing centenarians alter your own sense or expectations of aging? It's something that we all fear to some degree. Did it? Did it change your attitude? I think talking to the people and hearing their stories makes me uh, appreciate. And want to appreciate my life more, like what I've done. I want to, you know, think about, well, what are the memories that I'm going to be able to share with somebody when I'm an older person? Um, and sometimes I think when I look through my life, it's kind of, I oh, it's kind of boring. I don't know what's going on. I do the same thing every day. So I need to think about, you know, more monumental or big things that, you know, are interesting or fun or the things that I'll remember instead of just doing mundane things, you know, every day. I think people who are 100 now have lived through so many interesting right. things. It's just, it's, they're so fascinating to talk to I mean you don't really do mundane things I mean you uh, you have a photographic studio you meet so many people you have a book out I mean you are building stories all the time it seems mm. to it's everybody to else people like would look you. at you and think oh my goodness Anastasia she's so exciting she's got so much going on uh, my the- son asked me last night I was driving him home from college and he said so what's new with you and I was like well <laughs> I have a book out. I have a book. You're going to go to it with a launch party. <laughs> <laughs> and listen to me tomorrow morning on the radio. 
I don't know if he's awake or mm. listening. So in the foreword to your book, former Columbia Tribune arts writer, she wrote a lovely essay for yes. you, Amy Wilder. She talks about her reaction to your work and says, there was so much truth in the work, a kind of truth that we are conditioned to turn away from in contemporary life. So when you were behind the lens that first time, were you processing and reformulating your concept of beauty or did that come later? Or did you recognize it immediately as a beauty that had been overlooked? I th- That's an interesting question. I think that came later when I processed, you know, the work. I, th- I think at the time, well, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't a far, it wasn't a grand leap from photographing babies, honestly. So I love doing up close, abstract images of babies. I loved doing that. I did that a lot. Body parts. Body parts. I don't do that as much, I feel like, anymore as I did, you know, at the time. And so it wasn't, I didn't feel like it was a grand leap. I thought it was beautiful. I think texture and skin is gorgeous. I love working with stuff like that. Um, and people who are over 100 have a lot of that to work with. So It seems like when we talk about skin, it's always used in the language of youth. We talk about it being smooth or it's silky, it shines, it's soft, it's flawless. Have you, as you've gone through this process, have you found words of beauty to describe skin that time has created? What would be the vocabulary that oh, would wow. there would be a positive attribute to older skin? Because it's really it's really ingrained in our culture that when we think about skin, it's that advertising, yeah, it's TV, true. makeup. It's all beautiful and soft and well. And most of my models would say, "Why? Why are you doing this?" <laughs> they would say, "Thank you. I appreciate you doing this. This is great work, and I'm so happy you're doing it. And thank you." But what do you see that's beautiful in this exactly? And um, so I'm not sure. I mean, the word, the words to replace smooth and silky and I mean I would say translucent is one that comes to mind um I you know I think it's interesting to see veins um that look like you know rivers and stuff through the people's skin and that that's one thing I see you know in the images or um diamonds uh you know one of my models grandchildren said what i think about the most when i think about my grandpa is those diamonds on the back of his neck because he was outside working in the sun working in his garden and that's what i would see and that's one part of him that i love and so being able to photograph that um you know and and have that for them captured was really special um just the indention on this one woman's face where she'd worn her glasses you know for however many 80 years or whatever 90 years and she has this you know dent that's permanent on the bridge of her nose and being able to point that out and see that i i think that's cool i think it's cool what a lame word but it's (laughs) it's fascinating to think about i even i love feet and man i had to push to get two feet pictures in the book but I think it's fascinating to think about where those feet have carried people and and been and and why they look kind of gnarly is because they've done so much work for our bodies. So I think we should we should respect those feet. I don't think they're ugly. I think they might be gnarly and you know they've been through a lot. 
But again, you know, we think words like gnarly. It just has this kind of this this bad connotation yeah. somehow. And so it's really difficult. I was trying to think, you know, what words would I come up with that the skin is it's intricate and it's mapped, like oh, you're yeah. talking about, you know, the um, the mapping of the veins and it's textured yeah. and it's life rich and it's time etched and and those are great words. We Diana. need to come up with thank you. We need to come up with new words to talk about the, our aged bodies and what is beautiful about them. And you, we you spend so much time trying to get rid of those wrinkles. Right. And I think, I mean, some people will say, no, I've earned them, you know, but more than that, let's respect them, not just mm-hmm. I've earned them, but they're, they're a part of your story and it's, it's wonderful. It's tough to grow old gracefully when there is yeah. so much pressure on women, particularly, mm-hmm. to maintain that uh, charade of youth. Exactly. Uh, rather than just uh, admire the aging and the life that we have lived. Right, exactly. We're always trying to turn the clocks back. And you mentioned this a little bit uh, before. You know, Again, we're conditioned to think of our aging bodies as a decaying process. Things droop, they sag, they stop working, or they work too much. The hair we want disappears. The hair we don't want grows <laughs> all over the place. We're, we're desiccated, we're blemished. When, when you had interviewed, or when you'd photographed your subjects, did, they, did you give beauty back to them? Did they begin to feel more beautiful because of the process, because you had paid attention to them? I think some of them did. I feel like the last couple people that I worked with in San Diego were really appreciative of the process and what what I was doing and sharing that with the world. At that point, we knew it was going to be a book. So, you know, there was more of a focus on the end product at that point. So in the beginning, you know, we weren't sure what we were doing. And, you know, there they didn't know what they were getting into necessarily. But uh, these last, the last group of people, I think, were really, you know, I don't know, did I change their idea? Did they think they were beautiful at that point? I'm not sure, but I, I know that they felt appreciated and that were thankful for what I was doing and sharing with people. You talk in the beginning of the book, in the forward too, about being more present and being more vulnerable. And that was a difficult step for you. And that was kind of mm-hmm. part of this journey of photographing the older people was being vulnerable. Talk, how, talk about that and what that means to a photographer. Well, I don't, I'll tell you what it means to me okay. about that. Is that um, there's a story with that too. You want to hear it? Yes. So, <laughs> I was photographing a woman who was about to have a double mastectomy because she had breast cancer. And she knows she plays a huge part in my career and just my how I looked at photography. And I was driving to that and I just thought, you can't let your uncomfortableness with this process, you know, get in between you and these images. You need to be as vulnerable as this person is um, right now and get it together. <laughs> and, and don't don't be scared. Like I knew I couldn't, there was no retakes and because she was going in for surgery. I had to get it right. And I had to not just laugh it off. It was a serious moment. And to be there with that moment, even if it felt uncomfortable and awkward at times. And so that was recognizing that and realizing that I think changed the tone of my photography afterwards. Um, Even in my portraiture, you know, my commercial work, it's um, I try and be more, be more present, less just snapping of shutters, but being, um, uh, so I think I used to use the camera to separate me and the and the subject because it's between the two of us and it's really easy to do. But to remove that and talk with them and be more present with them and to slow down, those are the those are the things that I try and do. Um, 
and I talk about that a lot when I try and teach photography that it's it's much more I mean the skill needs to be there but the there's so many esoteric parts of photography that I feel like are equally or more important the feeling that you get when you're making that image or what are your what you're trying to say with the image um, and I think when I slow down and I'm more present and vulnerable, then I can, I can get that across better. And your models respond in a different way. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think so. So you find you get deeper into their truth yeah. in that moment, too. Yes. Finding the truth. Mm-hmm. on both sides of the camera. Yes. Um, Anastasia Pottinger, you have got your book launch coming up next week. Tell us a little bit about that. So it's 7 o'clock at Skylark Bookshop. Um, I'm going to talk for maybe about 15 minutes. I'm going to show some pictures, a slideshow that's not pictures that are in the book. So different images Ooh, of, the, of the people. Um, I think what I've decided to do is to select maybe three of the models and show some actual portraits of them and talk about um, some of the stories that aren't in the book. So stories from their life, a little bit of stories about the process of making the book and what that was like, but sharing some of those stories that they told me. You won't get those unless you come see me talk. Will any of your models be there? I don't I don't know. There are some local models and I know one of them I, one of them knows about it. Um, I don't know if she'll be there. When I go to San Diego, I'm definitely picking up one of them and bringing them. Are you doing a book tour? <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> I'll drive. Uh, I haven't set anything up yet. This is a tiny, tiny publisher. So <laughs> there's no money for a book tour. But I definitely have promised people in San Diego I'd come back. So I have to contact some bookstores out there. Uh, and I will. Um, I have one model that I talk to about once every two weeks. And I promised her I'd come scoop her up and take her out. Okay. Skylot Bookshop next Wednesday at 7 p.m. You can hear Anastasia Pottinger talk about her new book, 100 What Time Creates. Anastasia Pottinger, thank you so very much for coming into Speaking of the Arts. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, and I've been talking with Anastasia Pottinger about her new book, 100 What Time Creates. We are going to end this week's show with a, our usual roundup of some of the events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Columbia. This weekend is your last chance to see the comedy Clever Little Lies at Talking Horse Theatre. The show opens at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow with a final 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets are $15. At Columbia Entertainment Company, it's also the final weekend for It's a Wonderful Life radio play. That show starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, also with a 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets are $14. Out of town, you can see Capital City Productions, Christmas My Way, a Frank Sinatra holiday bash in Jefferson City. Tickets are $38 and include dinner. And in Arrow Rock, the Lyceum Theatre is in its first weekend of A Christmas Carol. You can catch matinee and evening performances this weekend and tickets cost from 17. Tonight is the True False Liftoff Party at the Craft Beer Cellar. It's an early evening event from 5 till 7 and it's billed as a chance to help celebrate the launch of True False Drinking Season and sample some of the effervescent drinks that will grace next year's fest. And at the Blue Note tonight it's the 80s versus 90s Ugly Christmas Sweater Party with DJ Requiem. The entry is $5 unless you come in an ugly Christmas sweater in which case you get in for free. I want to go to that. (laughs) 
<laughs> on Saturday morning, our first guest on today's show, Carrie Onley, will give a talk about her new book, Elements of Life, through the lens of Carrie Onley. That's at the Boone History and Culture Centre. Doors open at 9.30 and Carrie's talk will start at 10.30. At Sega Browdis Gallery tomorrow, they will have a special trunk sale of over 100 unframed works on paper from the estates of several of the featured artists in their master's exhibit of mid-century abstract expressionist works. This is a one-day-only event and a chance to peruse and maybe invest in a work on paper by an art historically significant painter of the mid-20th century. Saturday night from 5 till 9pm, Café Berlin is hosting its Berlin Bazaar with handmade goods from 11 local vendors, food, drink and music from DJ Tripmaker and DJ Sunspots. On Sunday afternoon, the Missouri Symphony Society will have its annual Symphony of Toys at the Missouri Theatre at 3pm. Donations of new, unopened toys for the US Marines Toys for Tots program are appreciated and encouraged. Tickets are $20 for adults and free for children under 18. From 5 till 7 on Sunday afternoon, Poppy is holding a fundraiser for Greenhouse Theatre Project at its store on Broadway. 20% of the evening's sales are going to be donated to Greenhouse and holiday food and drinks will be provided. Monday and and Tuesday evening, Columbia Entertainment Company will be holding auditions for its late February production of a play called Almost Maine. Head to CEC's theatre on Nellwood Drive at 7pm. They are looking for eight actors to perform 18 roles. On Tuesday evening, editorial cartoonist John Darko will be signing copies of his new book, Like Drinking from a Firehose, at the Columbia Missourian offices from 5.30 till 6.30. And the Stable Boys Improv Troupe return to Talking Horse Theatre for a Christmas special entitled Miracle in the Stable, an improvised Hallmark movie. Their show starts at 7.30 on Tuesday night and tickets are $10. Wednesday evening, we just heard from her. You can meet and listen to today's second guest, photographer Anastasia Pottinger. She'll be talking about her new book, 100, What Time Creates, at Skylock Bookshop. And that's on, on 9th Street and it starts at 7pm. There is no cost to attend, but Anastasia will be very happy if you bought one of her books while you're there. Or two. Or two. Later on Wednesday evening, it's Rose Music Hall's monthly Pints and Punchlines Comedy Night. Their show starts at nine and tickets are $2. On Thursday, head to the Missouri Theatre for a ragtag premiere of the new movie called The Favourite, pleasingly spelt the English way with a U, and starring Emma Stone, Rachel Weiss, and Olivia Colman. Doors open at six and the film starts at seven and you can buy tickets on the door for $10. And at Jesse Hall next Thursday, you can see Home Free, a country Christmas tour. This five-man all-vocal no-instrument band famed for their quick-witted humour and have had all four of their albums debut in the Billboard Top 5. It's presented in conjunction with The Blue Note and The Jesse Show starts at 8pm and tickets cost from 19.50. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Sarah Ketlin. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.